as the intro video kind of suggested, uh, for over the last several weeks, we've been in the sermon series of the loving the Old Testament. And Pastor Nathaniel and Richie and others have, have gone through and, and have shown us the importance, the foundational importance, what the Old Testament is for us as Christians today, living on the, in the New Testament era, um, but how foundational that is. And we've covered different offices that the Old Testament, that God has progressively revealed in the Old, Test, in the Old Testament, uh, that of prophet. We've gone through several prophets now, and they were God's spokespersons uh, in that time. And there was priests, uh, those that were charged to carry out the duties in the temple uh, for God. And so we've covered those things. And today I'm going to be covering the kingship. Prophet, priest, and king are the three main offices that the Old Testament portrays to us as we look back and on God's progressive revelation. And my topic uh, that Nathaniel assigned me was King Josiah. And so we're going to be going into his, um, I forgot the clicker, so you're going to have to forward that. We good? All right. So King Josiah is our, uh, our a topic. Thank you. Sorry about that. Hey, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> Don't do this very often, apparently. Um, so uh, before we get into King Josiah, I just wanted to provide you a little bit of a background. As students of the Bible, we always want to come with a proper historical context, kind of get our minds in the era and what was going on. So if you'll see the chronology there, um, the, the chronology of the judges timeline. So the government that the Israelites, God's people had prior to the kings, the monarchies beginning to reign, was that of the judges. And starting in 1350 BC, all the way to about 1050 BC. And, and Samuel, the first Samuel, it records to us there in 1050 BC that the people, the Israelites began to murmur and complain that they wanted a king, a, 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 a king like all the other nations had. They didn't want to be under the, the judges anymore. And indeed, they didn't really want to be under God's reign anymore. They wanted an earthly a, a, a king like all the other nations around them had. So God allowed that to happen, and King Saul was the first king. And as we follow that story through First and Second Samuel, we know that Saul became very prideful and uh, hardened his heart against the Lord. And so God had to dethrone him, basically, and had to choose another king. The first three kings, Saul, David, and Sam, uh, Solomon, were all chosen by God. So God went and through um, his prophet Nathan chose David. And so King David would be the next king. And the Bible portrays King David as the man after God's own heart, right? And King David, God used King David in, in many mighty ways. He took Israel and made them a, a nation of prominence. And he did that by David leading armies out to battle and, and taking out the, the heathens and the pagans around them and uh, destroying them. There's lots of battles that's found in the Old Testament that King David was in charge of and leading the way and allowed Israel to rise to a point of prominence in that time period. Um, as time grew on, um, if you follow the story, the, the, the temple, because they were, before they had gotten into the promised land, God had allowed them to build a tabernacle. And it was there that God would dwell with his people and the priest would take care of that. But this tabernacle was portable. But at the end, uh, when David uh, vanquished all the foes and, and established Jerusalem as God's city, uh, David desired to have God's tabernacle be built into a temple, a permanent place of, of dwelling for God. 
And so uh, the scriptures declare that David went to, to God through the prophets and asked that if he would, could build this temple. And God's response took, I think, probably David a little bit by surprise. Uh, God said, no, you can't because you're a man of war. You have lots of blood on your hands. And that's just, uh, I don't want that to be associated with my name. So I will not allow you to do it. But he went on to say that he'll allow his son Solomon, who would be the next king, to be able to fulfill that request and build that temple. Um, so, as I said, David desired to build a temple for God, but was denied. Um, and so he, allowed, he was going to allow Solomon to do it. But when God told him no, there was a very important thing that happened here. Um, he said no, God told him no, but he gave David a very important promise. It's called the, the Davidic Covenant. And he told David this in Second uh, Samuel seven sixteen. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So, although King David didn't wasn't allowed to build the temple, God gave him this what we call an unconditional covenant. This covenant, this promise that God made David, told David that his throne and his kingdom will rule forever. That's an amazing promise, is it not? It's unconditional. There's nothing that illustrates to us that David had to do something in order for that to happen. He's told David, I'm going to make this happen. It's unconditional. I'm going to do that. And so David was floored and uh, uh, highly amazed, as the Scriptures declare. Um, And so you would think that we'd see Israel begin to increase its prominence in the world as the world grew and, and the the civilization expanded its borders and uh, time progressed and technology progressed that Israel would be the, the main capital. And if God's promise indeed was true, that Israel would, the, the king that would succeed David would still be in power today. And we come to find out through the chronicles of history found in scripture that indeed was not the case. After Solomon, Solomon built the temple and it was a grand temple and it was beautiful um, but after Solomon, something happened to God's people. Something very, very uh, negative. Uh, the divided kingdom. So there was 12 tribes that cons- constituted the children of Israel. And after Solomon died, um, Rehoboam, his, I have a timeline for it. I don't know if you guys can see it. Probably not. But up here, Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And he began to reign but he made things hard on the people and the people rebelled. The ten tribes to the north rebelled against him and they established their own king over here, Jeroboam I. And so God's kingdom was suddenly divided. And so the first, the, the, the first kings and chronicles of the Old Testament uh, tell us it's a historical narrative and it begins to describe the children of Israel as these two separate kingdoms. We have two kings reigning and... No longer is God choosing the king, right? It's a, it turns from a charismatic cho- choice from God to um, a dynasty. It's all about lineage from Solomon on. So Solomon's son took, took reign, and then his son took reign after he died. And it goes on, and so it's a dynastic um, government, a dynastic monarchy, right? And so this begins to happen, and as you follow these kings... 
to the north, the tribes to the north, the ten tribes, the lost ten tribes, uh, they're very evil and very wicked. They've taken the, the temple and, uh, that's found in Jerusalem and, and all those things, and they've copied that. They put it up in their area because so, they didn't want their, the Israelites, those people of the ten tribes, to come down to Jerusalem and be influenced by them. So they, they made their own worship center, and they made a counterfeit of what Jerusalem was for God and all of that. And the kings begin to worship pagan gods and idols. And you can see through the time that they're just getting progressively evil and more evil and more evil. The godly line, the line from David to Solomon to Rehoboam to Abijah, you would hope that that's the, the second kingdom called Judah. You would hope that they increasingly became uh, reliant on the Lord. But in fact, as you read the Chronicles and Kings of the Old Testament, you'll see that there was some pretty good kings, but there was also some very bad kings. And through time, God's people began to be taken away and swept away from the things of God and uh, the worship of God to the worship of false gods and false idols. And so we see here at the end... Um, sorry, timeline's gone. We see here at the end, King Josiah is one of the last kings of Judah before the, the tribe of Judah or Judah, the, the people of Judah, begin to get carried away into Babylonian captivity. And uh, so we want to pick up here King Josiah. King Josiah was actually a very good king, which is an absolute miracle if you look at his father who reigned before him and the wickedness that he had uh, imposed on the people. Um, but King Josiah was a good king. And we have just a little background here. All right. He reigned 600, from 641 to 609 BC. He was uh, eight years old when he began to reign. When I tell, love telling my, the story to my children, I was like, could you imagine being eight years old and reigning over a people? And, and uh, they're you know, very surprised. He did what was right in the, in the Lord's sight. And so that's very key. Every king, when they're, uh, the chronology of the kings, or right away the author tells us this king did evil in the sight of the Lord, or this king, king tried to do right in the sight of the Lord. And so Josiah was a good king. And in his eighth year of his reign, he began to seek the God of his ancestor David. So all this time of the people of Judah being kind of pulled away from the things of God, the real God, the true God, who had delivered them out of Egypt, had done all these miraculous things, begins to get pushed further and further from their lives to the point where the king doesn't even know who this God is. He's heard of him, but he has no way of knowing how to have relationship with him. But he desires that. He desires to seek after the God of his ancestor David. He's heard the stories. He desires that. And so what he does is he... um, he begins ridding the land of Judah of images and altars and false idols. That's kind of the things that we like to do when we want to get in a relationship with God, right? I just want a relationship. I'm going to start getting things cleaned up in my life, right? That's a, it's a good heart. That's understandable. Um, so he began to do that. And then, Tara, if you can take over. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign... He turned his attention towards renovating the Lord's temple. Uh, he committed a significant amount of money 
and uh, craftsmen in order to attempt to restore the temple to its former glory. So he began to clean the land of idols and false gods. And then he turned his Lord to this temple. This temple had been, that was great and grander. King Solomon's temple had been run down and broken down. And so he knew that this was supposed to be the house of God. And so he turned all the, of Judah's money and, and craftsmen towards reforming that. And then we pick up the story here in this amazing uh, account here in Second Chronicles 34, 14 through 15. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It says, When the, they brought out the money that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord, written by the hand of Moses. So as they're cleaning up the temple, the priest comes along, dusts off some dust, finds this book. What is this? It's the law of the Lord. That is their condition. It's been this, this, this is where Judah has slid to. They don't even know what the law of the Lord is. They find out, what's this book? What is this? And so it goes on to say in 16, Shaphan took the book to the king and also reported, your servants are doing well, doing all that was uh, placed in their hands. But then Shaphan said in verse 18, the court secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read it to the, in the presence of the king. In verse 19 it says, When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded Hilkiah, Ahiakim, son of Shaphan, Abdon, and uh, son of Micah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and the king's servant, Asiah, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for those remaining in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. So it's quite the reaction, right? The high priest finds it, says, oh, it's a book. Shaphan takes it. He's like, oh, I'm going to go show the king. Shaphan reads the book of the law according to Moses. And what does this king do? This king that has this heart that wants seeking after God. He rips his clothes and he says, oh no, we're in trouble. Second um, Chronicles 34, 14 says, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. The law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. This is another covenant that was God had given Moses. Um, the Pentateuch, the law, the books of the law. And this, this covenant was called the Mosaic Covenant. And this covenant was a conditional covenant. If you go to Leviticus, and if you can stay asleep through all the begats, or stay awake through all the begats, right? You'll see that God says, this is my law. I desire for you to keep it because you are my people and you're representing me. But if you do this, if you uh, transgress this law, there will be cursing. It's conditional. If you keep my law, I will bless you. I will take the nations away from you. You will live in peace uh, your, your land will be a land of fruit and honey, but if you do not abide by my law, cursing will fall upon you. And so we see here, through the history of, of Israel, how the kingdom was divided and the ten tribes turned wicked right away and they were led off into Assyria before Judah, but Judah slowly and slowly began to depart from God. They were violating the Mosaic Covenant. And so utter destruction because of they, they violated this conditional uh, covenant. 
uh, cursing and destruction was required by the hand of God. Second uh, Chronicles thirty four twenty three through twenty eight says, "This is what the Lord says." So uh, again, uh, King Josiah sent, he says, "Go and inquire of the prophetess what God's going to do, because we are, according to the Mosaic law, we in, we are going to get God's wrath. We have violated this conditional covenant." And so they went and inquired to the prophetess Holda, and the prophetess said, "This this is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring disaster on this place." And on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the curses written in the book that they read in the presence of King Judah. Right? God is faithful and just, and if he makes a covenant, he will stick to it. And so he said in verse 25 Because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods, and in order to provoke me with all the works of their hands, my wrath will be poured out onto this place and will be it will not be quenched. That's uh Pretty bad news. So we understand when the king first heard the book of the law of Moses rending his clothes, right? He was in, he just, I can't believe it. My people, me, we're all under God's wrath. Verse 26, say this to the king. So the prophetess goes on. Say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, and listen to this, because your heart was tender, And you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard, this is the Lord speaking, I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster that I'm bringing on this place. Um, I, I, I will always remember when I first started reading through the entire Bible and, and coming across King Josiah and just how it resonated with me because that's exactly how I felt. I, I, uh, I, I tried to do a lot of things in my life that were good, that I thought were going to be pleasing to God. But when it came down to it, when I heard the word of, of the Lord and how his holiness and righteousness stood against my sin, I was in complete, I was destroyed I knew I had nothing to offer God, just as King Josiah did. But thankfully, my heart wasn't hardened. My heart was softened. And instead of running and hardening myself from God and running from him, I turned to him and I sought his mercy because I knew I alone could not do anything. And that's, hopefully you can see, that's what King Josiah did. He, 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 he turned to God. He didn't say, told Tell the, he didn't go to the prophet and say, go tell God all these good things I've been doing and see if he'll allow me to, to you know, save the people that way. He didn't do that. He didn't have anything to offer God. He just threw himself at God's mercy. And because his heart was tender and humbled himself, God said, I'm going to spare you the destruction that I'm going to send to the people. So that is a great example for us today. So as the, the narrative continues here in Second Chronicles 34, Josiah recommits to the Mosaic Law. And so we see here, next the king stood at his post and made a covenant to the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and decrees and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in the book. So after he has seen what is required of him, he commits himself and his people to 
recommitting to the laws of the book of Moses. And so they set out and renewed the practices of the temple. You'll see there in 16, 35, 16. So all the service of the Lord was established that day for observing the Passover, all these different things, these different sacrifices that God had instituted in the book of the law of Moses in the Pentateuch, he, they reinstated. And you'll find here in verse 18, no Passover had been like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel ever observed a Passover. So all those things that were required of them as God's people, they hadn't been doing for a very long time. And so God makes sure that he, they understand that King Josiah recommitted to those things. And so I, I minored in history um, when I first got out of high school. And I took this class called History Colloquium. And their, their intention was for the, the teacher was trying to get us to understand that if you really want to understand history, you've you got to take yourself out of your own time and period and your own biases. And you've got to insert yourself into the, into the people of the time to really understand what's going on and, and all that stuff. And it's a great practice for us as Bible students as well to be able to do that. So imagine if you're, if you're one of the faithful remnant who has clung to God and desired to see God work and has seen your nation slowly get dragged into idolatry and away from God. And you see king, this new king up here, King Josiah, and he rids the cleanses of the land and he, he recommits the people to... He's just maybe, maybe God will have mercy on the entire nation and turn his anger away from us. Maybe, just maybe, God will use King Josiah as the king to fulfill the Davidic covenant. That King David's throne would rule forever and ever. Maybe this is the king. And so we go on. What happens? Second Chronicles 35, 20 through 24. After this, the... That after all that Josiah had prepared for the temple, so they committed, they did the Passover, they did this once. Nico, king of Egypt, marched up to fight some other foreign enemy, and Josiah went out to confront him. And but continuing on in verse 22, but Josiah did not turn away from him. Instead, in order to fight with him, he disguised himself. He did not listen to Nico's words from the mouth of God, but went to the valley of Megiddo to fight. So this king from Egypt, King Nico, was coming up to battle some other land, but Josiah decides to get in the middle of it. And God, through King Nico, said, this isn't your fight, just let us pass. But Josiah instead turned and, and confronted him. And we find out in verse 23, the archers shot King Josiah, and he said to his servants, take me away, for I am severely wounded. And so you continue this narrative King Josiah goes out after instituting the Passover and keeping it for one year. He goes out and he gets killed on the field of battle by King Nico. And as you follow, it's getting close to the end of Chronicles and Kings now. As you follow the Kings, it wouldn't be but 10 years till uh, Judah is led off into Babylonian captivity. The king right after Josiah uh, was kind of Nico's main man, and they begin to do evil and begin to pull God's people away yet again to idols and strange gods. And so, is it all for naught? Um, would God not be able to fulfill his promise to King David? These are all things that those people were confronted with. 
right? They've seen and they have some scripture at this point. They know that God is faithful and has delivered them. Uh, uh, you know, what's going on? Is God able to do that? Um, there's an interesting tidbit, though, as I was um, studying this out that I just thought was awesome. Second uh, Chronicles 35.22 says, But Josiah did not turn away from him, but went to the valley of Megiddo to fight. The Hebrew word for Megiddo, the root word is Megadon. And this is a, a valley uh, where many battles in the Bible occurred. Okay? And uh, at this particular geographic location stands a prominent mount. The next slide has a picture of it. So you guys, you're standing on the mount, and you're overlooking the valley of Megiddo. Right? And then you're on top of this mount. And in Hebrew, the word for mount is, is Har. And so they call this Mount Har Megadon, Har Megadon, okay? And uh, the, the interesting tidbit that I thought was, you, you know what, this is translated into English in our New Testament, Armageddon. Is that a, people have heard of Armageddon before? So this is the same place, this Valley of Megiddo where King Josiah died is the same place uh, that Revelation speaks of in uh, the valley of Arm, or Arm, the, Ar, the Mount of, of Megadon, which is Armageddon. So um, that's the end of the story, right? God has pro- progressively revealed his, his, um, his rescue mission through the scriptures. He starts with creation in Genesis. He reveals this Messiah that would come through the prophets, priests, and kings. He reveals the offices that this Messiah would go, would fulfill. And, um, and, and then so we get to see progressively God progressively showing how he's going to rescue his people through time. And the book of Revelation is the end of that story, right? It's the end. I have a little hint for you. Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins. But it's the end of the story. We have the complete story. And so this Armageddon, this place, if you'll go with me to Revelation 16, this is a place where this final epic battle is going to happen between all the kings and nations that are against the Lord are going to come into that valley and come up to, to fight the Lord. And in Revelation 19, we see this picture of this person who is coming to fight this final last battle against God's uh, adversaries and enemies. Revelation 19, verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and, his head, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God Almighty. This is the end of the story. This is where God ends it, ends evil, and ends sin once and for all. Revelation nineteen sixteen, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. Wait for it. Wait for it. All right, it's not going to happen. There it is. King of kings and Lord of lords. So isn't it amazing that where Josiah fell and maybe the hopes of God's faithful remnant 
were dashed is the same place where God's King of Kings is going to come and fulfill the Davidic covenant once and for all. It's just amazing. Joseph Sye said this, And where God's King Josiah in mortar flesh thus fell a victim to the power of the heathen, there God's King, Jesus the Christ, in resurrection glory shall revenge himself on his enemies. It was the valley in Josiah's fall. It is the mount of Messiah's victory. Amazing. The Davidic covenant will be fulfilled, or is fulfilled, through Jesus. King Jesus, as Revelation continues on, King Jesus will indeed avenge himself. 21.5.7 says, The one seated on the throne, he assumes his throne. Look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and they're true. And this is a, a time coming. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the thirsty uh, from the spring of living water as a gift. So there's some people <laughs> that are benefiting from God's kingdom and Jesus being king. But look on. And he said to me, oh, sorry. Verse 7, the victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as we read on here, I can flip the page. But the cowards, the unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be, with, uh, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death is... Death is separation, and the second death speaks of us being completely separated from our Maker for all of eternity. It's a death, a spiritual death. We're separated from God for eternity. And he pronounces judgment on all those things. And to be honest, you know, the first few I can, I can go with, you know, right? Vile murderers, sexual moral sorcerers, idolaters, of course, right? But then it says all liars. Ouch. That hurts. That includes me. Um, And this goes to the Mosaic Covenant. Let's go back to the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a perfect picture or just kind of a hideout of God's character and who He is and who He desires us to be. And He lays out the Ten Laws, right? And thou shalt not bear false witness, right? Well... Unless, you know, you've never lied, that you've violated the Mosaic Covenant as well. James 2.10, his stepbrother wrote in the book of James, he says, He that keeps the whole law, if you keep it all, but yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. And you and I might say, well, lying's not that such a big deal. What's that, Well, We don't understand. We're kind of skewed. We're not God. We don't understand his holiness. We don't understand that he desires... Uh, that he cannot be in the presence of any sin. And we have violated the Mosaic Covenant as well. And those people, um, all who violate the Mosaic Covenant, are given this curse, this second death, this eternal separation from God. And that's pretty bad news, right? I remember when I first heard it. Like I said, I thought I had some good things that I could offer God that would outweigh my bad things. Uh, But when I... the the, the book of the law of Moses showed me that indeed I was guilty before a holy God, that my sin 
would not allow me to have be reconciled to him. It was some pretty bad news. And that's at the end of the story. But thankfully, there's some good news, right? The good news is found in the middle of the story. And so let's go back there in, in Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And I love that whoever decided the order of the, of the New Testament put Matthew first because it's the, it's the perfect bridge between the Old and the New Testament. Because what it starts off with first and foremost is King, uh, King Jesus' lineage going back all the way back to King David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. So this book was written to the Jews as saying, this is your king. This is the king that God promised. And... Um, Matthew one twenty three says, See this virgin, so in the book of Matthew, it gives the lineage and then it goes on to say, See the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. This is an Old Testament prophecy of, that was given 800 years prior to Christ's coming. And they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. This is an eternal king. This isn't a, a human king who will die and hope that his son comes up, he's an eternal king and he will reign forever. 121 says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name his, him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua, and it means the Lord is salvation. So it was all planned from the beginning of time that this Messiah would come, that God would step into his creation to save a people from their sins. And then the book of Matthew also contains the Sermon on the Mount. That's located in Matthew 5, chapters 5 through 7. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount is just a great sermon that Jesus got up on the mountain. He, he spoke and blessed are the, right? And it's just a wonderful sermon. There's so many things loaded in there. Um, and like I said earlier, the Ten Commandments of the Mosaic Law demonstrate that we're all sinned. We've all sinned against God. And so Jesus stands up and he takes the law, and even goes further with it. Not only are you not to commit adultery, he says, if you think on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Right? He expounds on the law. He even sets the mark in 548, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a King Josiah moment, I hope, that some of you have had or are having now or will have someday. Wow. Before a holy God, I have nothing to offer. I have sinned. I have violated his conditional covenant. It's a King Josiah moment. But the thing is, is we must take the entire sermon into account. And before the Lord began expounding and and adding, or not adding, but explaining to the Pharisees who on the outside kept the law, but in their hearts they were wicked as all of us. And Jesus was trying to point that out. He says in 5.17, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He came to fulfill the law. And Christ was indicating to them that he came to fulfill the law in every aspect. Because he was God and he did not have the sin nature that we were inherited with, according to Romans chapter 5, from the seed of of Adam, because he was God, he, he could keep the law perfectly. And he came into creation and he kept the law perfectly. Not to just prove that he could do it, but he did that because he loves us and he loves you and he did it for you. He did it for you. He did what you could not do. 
He knew, just as we know, the compassionate high priest, the book of Hebrews calls him, that he, we needed an intercessor. And so he came and he fulfilled that law perfectly. Be ye perfect? Christ was perfect. And I don't have time. Nathaniel gave me like four or five weeks to prepare. And so when I got done, the first sermon was like three hours long. <laughs> but don't worry, it's only two hours, so we're good. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Almost done. Just kidding. My uncle's giving me, what? Come on. All right. So in essence, there's one verse that captures what the New Testament progressively reveals. That Jesus came to fulfill the law so that he could be our substitute on the cross. He came, fulfilled the law, so that the scriptures say he's the spotless lamb of God that came to take the sins from the, of the world and put them on himself. So we know, and hopefully you know, the story that Jesus grew to be a man and he, he did miracles and showed people that he was indeed God in the flesh because he had power over all things. He lived the law perfectly. He fulfilled it in every... And then he willingly went to the cross. And on that cross, the scriptures declare that for three hours, it turned dark. And it was there that the imputation happened where God punished Christ on our behalf for every sin that we have ever committed. And it was there that the Lamb of God, without sin, as Second Corinthians 5.20 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He came without sin, and He went to the cross to be sin for us. And so it's called the Great Exchange. All those who believe and trust in the gospel that this Messiah came and he declared, whoever believes in me and my mission and what I'm doing and trust in my accomplished works will have, be inherited into the kingdom, into my kingdom. That kingdom that Revelation 21 is talking about, where we drink from the spring of waters of living life, where we have eternity, where there is no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin to fight with every day. All those things will be given to you if you just trust and believe in my vicarious work on the cross. He said again and again in Matthew, telling his disciples, I must go and I must die and on the third day I will rise. That was his mission, to fulfill the law, to become sin for us on the cross so that we in turn, because God is love as, also as, as well as just and holy, He's also a God of love. He desires that, to have a reconciliation between us. And so he punishes Jesus, and in turn, we get Christ's righteousness. What do we do for it? We believe and trust in it. It's nothing that we could do. We should all have had our King Josiah moment. There's really nothing I can do. I'm in trouble. But... Jesus came on a rescue mission. He is the king that came to seek and to save those who are lost. And if we trust in the cross, this wonderful thing called regeneration happens where as we trust and we don't harden our hearts from God and run away from God, but we have a King Josiah moment and say, 
I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm running to God and I'm going to ask for his mercy and his grace because that's the only thing that I have. Guess what? He's made a way through grace and mercy. We get Christ's righteousness. We're added into his kingdom. John 1.12 says, For whoever believes in him shall be the sons of God. We're added to those things. We become royal heirs to Christ. All these amazing things that we can't do anything to deserve, but that as an expression of his love has given us through Christ's atoning sacrifice. So closing thoughts. Finally, huh? Christ's substitutionary atonement can apply to you unless you have some type of King Josiah moment. I, I, I talk with a lot of people and they, it seems like they just kind of add Jesus to their list of their good things or their, their church membership or whatever. And, and that, in order to have the, this gospel, this great exchange occur, you must understand that you cannot appease God with your works. You have to have that moment and say, I am in trouble. I have violated his, his, uncondi- or his conditional covenant. And it's only then when we, instead, we, have a, we don't harden ourselves, but we turn to God um, that God regenerates us and gives us that wonderful gift of salvation. The gospel can't be good news until you realize that the bad news applies to you. Is basically what the King Josiah moment. And as far as Christian, if you're a Christian here and you've, you've been walking with the Lord, you know, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I don't know what, what's going on in your heart and your mind right now, but there's a few things that, as I was studying this out, that have occurred to me. And so just questions. I say Lord almost as like a, a habit now. Oh, Lord, praise the Lord, right? Oh, Lord, you know, dear Lord, what does Lord mean? Do you, I sometimes, I just get so swept away that I, I forget that Jesus is my king. He's my king. This king that, this hero king that died for me. When's the last time you thought about that? It's been a while for me, I admit. And so because of that, he wants to rule and reign in our lives. He didn't save us, as we know, just to go out and sin whenever we want. Right? He saved us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We know that through him, we have the ability to walk in righteousness because his grace empowers us. But if he wants to rule in our lives, what areas of your life have you not allowed him to reign in? I'm a compartmental guy, right? Don't ask me to multitask. Not very well. I'm not very good at that. But, and so some things I let Jesus rule and reign in, right? When I'm home, family's around, I want Jesus front and center. But when it's Friday night and it's three o'clock and I have this terrible customer and I just want to do a bunch of shortcuts to get out of there, you know, the Bible declares that I should be working not for my boss, but as I were working for Jesus, Right? Do I give him the ability to reign? Probably not. Just, I'm just saying that's for me. So there's several different areas in my life that I, I compartmentalize. God, or Jesus, you can reign here, but this area is off limits. Scripture declares that peace and joy come when we just say, when we have another King Josiah moment. God, it's yours. I have nothing to offer. I need you in this area of my life. So 
just some things to think about. If you're the first time you've heard of this gospel and you have questions, you're confused, I'm going to be at the back corner. I'd love to be able to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ in this great exchange. But just remember, and I'll answer your questions, I'll be more than happy to, I remember, I can't save you. Jesus, accomplished work on the cross can save you. And if you desire that to be true and evident in your life, if you have that King Josiah moment, right where you are, turn to God and fall on his mercy and his grace and ask to be saved and to be added into God's kingdom. Um, I just wanted to close with this video. I saw this video a few, um, a few years ago. I just thought it was great. It's just this perfect, for me, a great example of what it means to be walking, doing your own thing, and then encountering Jesus, having that King Josiah moment, and your life's forever changed. So I hope you like it. According to these beliefs, God does not exist. It's just foolish to think that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. That an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. In a world with no God, there's freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. Without God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of saving. And that's how I felt before Christ opened my eyes, changed my heart, and reversed my thinking. I am lost and in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine without God. Life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you will be, is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world, that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. It's foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs 